Amen. It is good to sing His praises together. Thank you to the worship team. Would you bow your heads with me as we approach God's Word this morning? Lord, teach us. We want to know You. We want to understand Your truth. We want to understand Your heart. We want to know You to worship You. And we want to obey Thank you for loving us, Lord, and so now we come as your children to receive our nourishment from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why should we study the book of Genesis? Probably a question a lot of you are asking. Why take the time to work through so much of it carefully? Isn't it just ancient history? Now, I really hope that's not what this congregation thinks, but just in case, Genesis reveals the storyline, the narrative of human history. In fact, it it reveals the storyline of world history. It doesn't just give us data about the earliest humans, it tells us stories, stories about them that allow us not just to learn facts, but to experience moments. See, that's the difference, in my mind at least, between a a textbook of definitions and maybe something like a biography. A textbook tells us facts, lists propositions. A biography allows us to experience not only facts, but feelings that come along with those facts. Now, I know that we don't talk a lot about feelings from this pulpit, and maybe to our shame, but think about it. It isn't enough to know what my wife likes. I want to know how much she likes it and how she feels when a particular thing is given to her. That's a different kind of knowledge, an important kind of knowledge. Stories give us that. To say a mother loves her children, that's one thing. It's fact, it's true, but to tell of her tears at the thought of her child's pain that's different it tells us more so look one of the reasons that i love studying the book of genesis is that we don't just get certain facts about humans and certain facts about our god we get to experience in some sense the affect the feelings that even god projects now here's a caveat God doesn't feel the same way we do. He isn't controlled by his emotions. He doesn't fly into a rage. He isn't surprised by an action so he gets shocked and just reacts. God is perfect and unchangeable in every way, even impassable, not moved by passions. But as he is communicating with us, who do have emotions and feelings. He uses our language to help us understand something so true and important about Him that we couldn't grasp otherwise. This morning, we're going to see one of the darkest stories in human history. And it is early in the story of humanity, and that's kind of the point. It is a dark time, and we're going to see into the hearts of humans, and we're not going to like what we see. But this event and moment in history will also give us a chance to see the heart of God. 
And it'll help us to grasp some key elements of his character and relationship with us. So please turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the seat in front of you. You can grab that. Turn to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. But as you're turning your Bibles there to Genesis chapter 6, I want to quickly give a summary of chapter 5. Some of you thought, we're going to skip chapter 5? Some of you thought that with joy. And I'm saying, no, no, we're not skipping it. We're going to summarize it. We're going to summarize chapter 5. Chapter 5 reveals, you can look back at it if you have your Bibles open, it reveals that humanity was fruitful and multiplying. Filling the earth. It's Adam's genealogy. You can see chapter 5, verse 1, the, the generations of Adam. It's his family tree. Uh, it traces the generations of Adam through Seth, not through Cain, of course, all the way down to Noah, but also shows something important. Death reigns. Take a look at chapter 5. Look at verse 5 in chapter 5, the last part of that verse. And he died. Look down to verse 8. And he died. Verse 11, what do you think? And he died, yes. Verse 13, you get the point. And it goes on and on and on. And he died and he died. So someone is born, but also he dies. That's what chapter 5 is telling us. Death reigns. Even though they're being fruitful and multiplying, death still reigns. But then there are two things in chapter 5 that stand out to us that give us hope. First, look at verse 21. Enoch... One who walked with God is not said to have died, but to have been taken up by God. And with all the and he died in that chapter, this stands out. Apparently, death doesn't have to have the final word. That's important. Keep it in mind. There's something else. Look at verse 29. We have Noah who's born, whose name sounds like the word for rest. Something his father Lamech prayed for. And fallen humanity needed so desperately rest. That brings us to chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen as I read. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were bold, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amen? May God bless the reading of His Holy Word. Two broad points this morning, two broad categories that we're going to think in. First, the wickedness of man. 
And second, the heart of God. The wickedness of man and the heart of God. We'll start with the wickedness of man. I don't know what your first reaction is when you read this passage, but for many people, they find it strange. There are a lot of questions that surround this passage, many that we're not even going to be able to answer, but one of the maybe most important questions of all, if you look at verse 2, is who are the sons of God in this passage? Are they angelic beings? Spiritual beings? See, uh, sons of God language used elsewhere in the Old Testament is referring to angelic beings, not to humans. In fact, that particular phrasing, sons of God, in the plural, from what I understand, is not used of humans anywhere in the Old Testament. Not in the plural, in singular, yes, but... So some believe that the Bible is telling us that there were these angelic beings breaking from their assigned roles and realm, lusting after human women, and then begetting giants, these mighty men, perhaps even the Nephilim, if that's the same thing. At first glance, the modern reader, of course, goes, well, that's, that's weird and doesn't think that it's possible. But it really was the common position in the early centuries of Christianity. And I have to say that it's making a comeback by some very careful scholars looking at the unseen realm, the spiritual world around us that is very real. Now, if it's not angelic beings, though, What's another possibility? Are, they the, the, are these sons of God here royal figures? Warriors? The strong men already? Who maybe think of themselves as sons of God? Some, in fact, think that maybe there's this angelic or better yet demonic power behind some people in places of power. And maybe they've made a deal with the devil, so to speak. And So this... The sons of God language is about humans, human royals, human warriors, but they're trying to make a name for themselves like we already saw in chapter 4 in Cain's line. Now, there's another view, maybe the most common view. Are the sons of God the line of Seth, the holy line that we read about in chapter 5? And instead of staying in the godly line as opposed to Cain, these intermarry with the daughters of men, that is, with Cain's line. Maybe that's what's going on here. This is a pretty common view. Uh, I think there's a lot of merit to this one. I'll be honest, I don't think that we can be very dogmatic about which of these views is the right one. In fact, along with the question of who is the Nephilim of verse 4, you can look at it there, these are not easy questions to answer, and a lot has been written about this. Actually, I have to say, not just a lot has been written about this, but there have been podcasts about this. Um, don't listen to them, please. Uh, there have been some fascinating podcasts that I promised someone I would listen to, and I did, uh, about conspiracy theories in this passage. Don't, don't listen to these podcasts. Here, here's, here's what we know, though, is clear in the text. And I want you to look at the text, because here's something that is clear in the text. Whatever is happening... It's bad, right? Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that God will not stand for it any longer. It's not a good thing when we find that God comes to his limit. He's reached his limit. He has been patient. He's been long-suffering. But we've reached an important point here. 
So whatever's happening, it's bad. Something else, whatever is happening, and, and here's something important, it is focused on humanity. They are the ones God holds responsible. Look at verses 3 and 5 and make it clear. That's why I'm personally convinced that the angelic being's view is probably not the right view because the responsibility, the burden is on mankind. It's on humans. God here is talking about humans. And here's something else that we know for sure in this text. Whatever is happening, it fits the pattern that we've been seeing in Genesis so far, and it just keeps getting worse. That's the point, I believe, of this passage. Sin is getting worse and worse and worse. The fall, beloved, was a big deal. We have to understand that. The impact of the fall, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, that impact was greater than we could ever imagine. What's the pattern that's repeated here? Look at verses 1 and 2. They help us to see that man is multiplying on the earth. That's good. It seems good at least. But along with humans multiplying and filling the earth, this text tells us that something else is filling the earth as well. Their fallenness. Sinfulness. Remember back in chapter 3, Eve saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil she thought that it looked what? Good. She said it's good for food, good for other things too. And then it says, the scriptures say that she took and ate. Look at verse 2 in our passage here. It's actually the very same language. In English, it may not be translated exactly the same, but in the original language, it is the same language. The sons of God saw what did they see? That the daughters of man looked attractive. By the way, that word attractive or translated by the ESV attractive is the word good. Same as what Eve saw. And they took as their wives. This pattern's on purpose. Eve saw it looked good, so she took to eat. They saw these women. They looked good, so they took to marry. They didn't act according to the design of God or the Word of God, but according to their desires, their flesh. Isn't that exactly how all sin works? They stepped over whatever boundary God had put in place for them. They were supposed to be in the line of Seth, or if they're angelic beings, they were supposed to live in their realm and stay there. But no, instead they've crossed over. They've, they've transgressed. They've gone beyond what God had designed for them and desired for them. This, I think, fits very well with the line of Seth view because it reveals that it was those who were supposed to be the hope of the human race. The ones who, maybe as we're reading chapter 5, we think they're the ones that fulfill the promise of Genesis 3 and the seed. They're the ones now who are falling into sin. In other words, even the good guys aren't really good. Sin has tainted us all. Please don't miss that point. Even the good guys aren't really good Sin and the fall has tainted us all. In fact, look at verse 4. Though there's a lot of questions here as to what it all means, the one thing that stands out to me is the final word. In the ESV, it's translated renown, but in Hebrew, it's simply the word name. They were making a name for themselves again. We saw it with Cain. We're going to see it again with Babel. 
when we want to make a name for ourselves, we can't at the same time be, be making a name for God and honoring Him. Verse 5 then sums up everything we need to know. Don't miss it. God is now the one looking. What does He see? He sees the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to this line. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you think there could be a worse description? Every intention. Another translation might be every inclination. It's the the direction of the human heart, the turn of our hearts, left to our own design, left to who we are, born in sin, left to us after the fall by ourselves. We would be only after evil, selfishness, personal pleasure, pride, and every other awful thing that transgresses God's design for us. So the Creator is looking down at His creation, at the crown of His creation, The one made in his own image. That wasn't said about others, but about humans. And made to represent him and to image him and to show the the whole world what he's like. But instead, he sees it went from the first man and woman following the tempter's ploy, eating what they were told not to, to their son killing his brother, to someone in Cain's line taking on multiple wives, and not just that, killing someone, celebrating his killing of that person, and then calling on his wives to come and celebrate with him. And then even though we had said this line of Seth was like the rebirth, it's going to be a new life, was giving hope that man could, could live up to his design and his calling, well, here we're told that even they reject the lordship of God and instead pursue their own ways. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Make a name for ourselves. Hearts turned inward, seeing something, wanting it, so we take it. That's the unregenerate human heart. That's the flesh at work. What's the issue? Well, is it intermarriage? Is it their pursuit of power and glory? Is it living according to man's desire rather than God's design? Is it living for our name instead of his? Yes, 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 sure. All those things are true, absolutely. But, beloved, don't miss this. The root of it all and the emphasis of this text is this. It is the heart of man. That's the problem, right? It's our hearts. And if it's the heart that's the problem... What can fix it, right? What can fix a heart turned inward? It's not going to be education, all right? If I just know enough, maybe I'll change. Because look, it's not just a mind issue, is it? Sin is a desire issue. There are a lot of things I know are bad for me, but I still eat them or do them, right? I very often know exactly what I'm doing when I'm doing something that is wrong. It's not just knowledge. It's not just education. It's not behavior modification that solves the issue. Because I often do what appears right, behave well, but inside my heart I'm still pretty wretched, full of contempt, full of anger, full of complaints, full of hypocrisy. I could do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Changing the rules 
maybe that's going to help. Not really. Giving in and, and making desires now the right way to live. Whatever you want, whatever you feel like, do that, right? That's what the world kind of does today. You do you, we've said before, is probably really bad advice to a sinner. Because if I do me, oh boy, and Genesis 6-5 is true, and it is, then I will step all over people to get what I want. I won't care. The level of wickedness reached such heights, as bad as it could get, that God's judgment had to come. Why? Well, let's turn to the heart of God now and see. Wickedness of man and heart of God. Look back at verse 5. The Lord saw. Now again, beloved, obviously this is using human language to describe something we couldn't even imagine. It's not that God didn't know and he had to come and see. We know that's not true, but he's telling us a story, a narrative, so we can understand something about it. But we have here the Creator, the Father, looking down at his creatures and seeing that after all he has given them, all he has done, imagine back in the garden, remember, all these things are yours, just that one tree don't eat, right? But here, after all that he's given to these people, he sees that they have rejected him fully. They've betrayed him completely and rebelled against him. Back in verse 2, it was the sons of God that saw, and now Yahweh sees, and what he sees is not pretty. It's as if the father of the prodigal son, about a month ago or so, Pastor Hike preached on the prodigal son. Imagine if the father is not just waiting at home looking out to see if his son's going to come, but imagine if his, the father was out there in that Gentile world where the son had gone to, to live in debauchery, to live in sin, to party it up and all that, and the father is just watching him waste his life away doing those things. That's what we're getting a sense of here in this text. He's seeing us burn through our inheritance and then some of the most shocking words that we'll ever read in Scripture in verse 6. Shocking. The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth. And it grieved Him to His heart. Beloved, that's how bad sin was and is. That it grieves the heart of God. But God doesn't regret like we do change his mind like us the bible is clear on that but remember what i said earlier narratives and stories they help us to experience something that just giving us facts could not explain or capture the word of god here is communicating something really important to us with this language even if it's not about god's own being within himself it is helping us understand god's heart and his affections what God loves, what God hates, what grieves Him. What should we love? What should we hate? What breaks God's heart? And what do we find here in the following verses? I believe we find God's character, God's justice, and God's love. Look at God's character. There's something important. God, I said, is not emotional like we are. He's not changed by His circumstances. He doesn't deal with anxiety or fear or anger or break out into a rage like you and I might. He's not shocked by something like we would be. In Scripture, though, we sometimes find language that sounds like that about God. He repents or he changes his mind or he regrets. 
But we also have scripture that tells us that God is a rock or a fortress, or he covers us with his wing. We know that's not literally true. It's a figurative way of saying something about a God who is so far beyond our words and thoughts that we could never know him truly as he is. Calvin said that when God speaks to us, he lisps. Like when adults are talking to infants and children. He accommodates his language for us to understand and for us to be changed. He's shaping us by the way he's telling this story. So what do we find here about God's character that we need to make our own? God hates sin. Let let that sink in for a second because I know we know that. But, but think about it. God hates sin to the point that, look at what it says in the text, he laments. He grieves the, the rebellion of humanity. He grieves it. It is horrific betrayal. It's that feeling that you get when you are told that your husband or your wife is cheating on you. Or your, your best friend and business partner has just stolen all of your funds and run off. Or maybe this one is the most like it. Somehow you discover that your own children have been plotting your murder. Imagine. Habakkuk 1.13, you, speaking of God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, that God is seeing all that is wrong. The Israelites, who are the first recipients of this, right? They're, they're the ones that the story is being told to initially. They know the holiness of God. They've been experiencing it because they would have known that to stand before the Lord in this kind of unholiness described here would have been fatal. They couldn't even look at Moses after he went up and had a, a meeting with God, right? And he comes down and he's going to speak to them. They're like, whoa, we can't look at you, Moses. Imagine that God is looking at us in our sin God hates sin. There's more. Look at verse 7. We also find out God's justice because of His holy character. Sin not only does He hate, but He has to punish it. How how upset do we get, beloved, when a judge decides to let a criminal go free instead of receive punishment? How angry, rightly, do we get when the criminal seems to have more rights than the victims? If we get upset at that, how How could we expect the perfect and holy God to not punish sin? God hates sin. God hates what sin does to his creatures. God has to punish sin, which should cause us all to stop and think, "But, but wait, wait, I'm a sinner. Yeah, we are. Verse 3 tells us that God's Spirit will not abide with man forever. Verse 7 gives us a depiction of what Paul's going to go on later in the New Testament to teach. The wages of sin is what? Death. Here God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Judgment is deserved. One author put it this way, men and women are so desperately wicked that they grieve God's heart to the extent that rather than comfort them, God will destroy them. Justice and wrath. 
God hates sin. God punishes sin. Man, we can't sugarcoat it, beloved. We, we can't try to lessen the standard. God doesn't grade on a curve. And, it, and if you're receiving this and you're going, but I'm a sinner and how, how is this? What can I do? How can I stand then? Because God hates sin and I know my own sin. Then, like me, you'll be amazed that this is not the end of the story. There's one more line. One more verse before the generations of Adam that started in chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 1. It's going to come to an end in verse 8 here. See, Genesis 6-9 starts a whole new line. It says the generations of Noah are going to be described. But here Moses is bringing to a close Adam's generation. And here's what he says in verse 8. What do we see? But Noah found favor... By the way, I wish they would translate that grace because that's what the word is. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Note this, verse 9 goes on to talk about Noah as righteous and blameless, but not verse 8. That's not what we find in verse 8 because verse 8 describes the grace of God, which is a word that refers to a gift given without merit, unearned, This isn't about Noah, it's about the heart of God. In the middle of all this judgment, there is still a word of kindness. An amazing display of grace. God would have been justified in destroying all humankind just as he is justified in sending us all to hell. We've sinned against him and still do. We've declared war on him. Imagine as we're probably even right now wrestling with this thought, trying to justify our sins, going, I'm not that bad as I compare myself to you. No, maybe. But before the perfect standard of God? God would have been justified, yet God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a seed who would destroy the serpent and be a champion for God's people. So, the final word about Adam's descendants is a word about Noah. Rest. The final word about a people who increase so rapidly into sin, expanding and multiplying, not the image of God in filling the earth, but instead their own sinful names. The final word is grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord while we were yet sinners. What? Christ died for us. Amen? Imagine the original readers or hearers. They're out in the wilderness. Moses or Aaron, someone is sharing this with them. This is our God. Yes, He is a consuming fire against the horrific wickedness of of man. Yet at the same time, a God of redemption who has a plan to save his people, and he will. So, what do we see? Hopefully, we see our own hearts and our need for God's grace. I hope that we see our own brokenness, our own sinfulness when we think about sin and how we so often are led by our desires, and I think I talked about it a couple weeks ago, we look more like Cain's line than Seth's line. We, need, we realize we need a new heart. Seth's line needed it too. And we can't give ourselves a new heart. 
but God can. And in Christ, he does. That's exactly what he does. That's the message of the gospel. Beloved, Jesus did it all. We simply, with empty hands, receive him by faith. And he both covers us with his perfect life and death, and he begins to change us. He turns our hearts from being only evil continually to being new turning toward God and others, learning to love God and man. Only Jesus and His gospel could do that, cling to Him, turn to Him, trust Him. What else do we see? Because of Jesus, and because we, if we are Christians here, we have been changed by Him, we now see the same way that God sees. We see the horror of sin. We see just how wicked humanity is, starting with our own hearts. We see how we rebelled and how we've made everything about our own names and our own comforts and our own lives and not about our God and how selfish we've become. And seeing what grieves the heart of God should make us never want to fall into such a life. The God who has loved us and rescued us in Christ How could we so callously live in a way that caused him to regret even having made humanity? So we pursue instead what he loves. What does he love? What did he do? He gave grace. He gave himself. We want to hate what God hates. We want to love what God loves. We want to rejoice and rest in the realization that this is only possible because we've first been loved by Him in Christ. And so we pray, change our hearts, Lord. Change the way we see the world. Change the way we see You. And may we live for You. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in Your Word that we could not cover, but I pray that You would help us to take the things that we have covered the truths of the fallenness and depravity of man and yet just how much greater your grace is even than that and trust you i pray that you would move in our hearts to know how desperate we are for your kindness toward us and realize what we have in you And then live lives of gratitude and joy, seeking after the things that please and honor you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this time, I'm going to invite Roger to come forward and lead us in the Lord's Supper.